0: We are continuing our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Romans. We are in chapter 4, verses 13 through 25 this morning. I want to encourage you to uh, read along with me in your pew Bible or your personal Bible and to keep your Bible open as we uh, move through this text together this morning. Uh, I'm going to be referring back to it often, and and it's a little bit of a a complicated argument that Paul's making here. So I want you to follow along with me in your text. Before we uh, read the holy, inspired Word of God, let us turn to the Lord and ask His Spirit who breathed out this Word uh, to open our ears and our minds that we might receive this Word today and understand it and put it into practice in our lives. Let us pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null. And the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as, The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. We pick up this morning in the middle of Paul's argument in Romans 4 about Abraham and righteousness. Now, if you are a Jew looking for a reason to discredit or perhaps even to accept Paul's argument that he has made about righteousness coming through faith in Jesus Christ in chapter 3, then where are you going to turn for evidence to support your belief? The Old Testament scriptures, for starters, especially, specifically, the story of Abraham, the one whom the Jews considered their father the one with whom God had made the covenant of promise. Paul is going to reveal to the Jews that their own scriptures give witness to the fact that his teaching, this teaching by Paul, is not a novelty. It's not anything new, but it is entirely consistent with the covenant made with Abraham. But what Paul is saying here is not only important for the Jews, it is also revealing how God has included the Gentiles into the covenant through its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now we as 21st century American Christians who probably do not feel the need to work it all out or realize the importance of the continuity of the covenant from the Old Testament to the New might just be prone to quickly pass over what Paul is saying here. It might seem extraneous to us, Paul, seems to have worked all of this out in the the past few chapters, which came to their climax in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And we get it, right? Paul's saying that righteousness, a right standing before God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by way of any condition or requirement on us. It is entirely by God's grace. And Paul's gone to great lengths to say that we are incapable by our own effort of satisfying the legal demands of God. So, so we might think that we don't really need what we see as just further proof of what Paul has already said earlier. I want to, to urge you to not quickly pass over this section of Romans, though. What Paul is saying here is not only brilliant for the sake of explaining the gospel he is promoting, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is also vital for us to understand what God has done for us in our place in this story of promise. The story did not begin when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It began long ago and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But if we are to get what the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has accomplished, then we have to understand the history behind it. So last week we looked at the first two parts of Paul's argument concerning Abraham. The first being that Abraham was counted righteous before God through faith, not works. The second being that Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised, not after. If you were here last if you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen to Pastor John's sermon online or pick up a copy in the church office. But to review quickly, Paul emphatically asserts in the first twelve verses of Romans chapter four that Abraham is credited as righteous simply through his belief in God's promises to him. The language Paul is using here is business language. Think in terms of, of money. There are two ways to be credited. If you work, then your wages are credited as a right, a debt, an obligation, for you have earned them. If you have a plumber come to your house to fix a clog in your sink, then you better expect to pay him for his services, right? He has performed a service for which you owe him a payment. Now, Paul is arguing that this is not the case with our righteousness. We are not credited with righteousness because of any work on our part. God doesn't owe us anything, at least not anything that we would be hopeful to receive. We have not done anything to earn God's favor or have a right standing before God, and we can't. Now, your bank account also can be credited in another way, Right? probably doesn't happen often, so you might not be thinking in this direction. But what is money we receive that we have not worked for? It's a gift, right? Gifts, by definition, are unearned and free. They are simply received. Paul says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Paul wants us to understand that credit is either given as a result of work or as a gift. It is one or the other. What is given as a result of work and what is given as a gift are mutually exclusive of one another. So Paul goes on to quote David to recall the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So David realized very clearly that he was receiving something that he had not earned and did not deserve, namely the forgiveness of sins. And the other side of the coin is that he did not receive what he had truly earned, namely the wrath of God for his disobedience. So Paul will say in chapter 6, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift... Of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Righteousness is credited to David apart from works as a blessing through God's grace. It is a free gift. Now, after pointing out these truths from the scriptures concerning Abraham and David, Paul then goes on to ask, To whom is this free gift given? Only to the circumcised? In other words, is God's promise only for the Jews? Paul reminds the audience. That Abraham was credited as righteous before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign and a seal of this righteousness given because of his faith in God, not as a means by which he received the promises of the covenant. In other words, the role of circumcision is to confirm, to document, to ratify, to authenticate the right standing by faith that Abraham already had. And don't miss the significance of this. The significance of it is that circumcision is revealed to not be essential in terms of right standing before God. Thus, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised can be counted as righteous through faith in God. So Paul has accomplished at least two things here. He's established that confidence shouldn't be placed in circumcision because it alone is insufficient for righteousness. He has also revealed that the promise of the covenant is extended to the Gentiles who have faith in the same way as it does to the Jews who have faith. All right, is everybody with me? Okay, good. Now, here in verse 13, so look at your text. Paul continues this dismissal of anything that one might look to to find the righteousness outside of faith alone as well as to lift up this idea that Abraham is not simply the father of the Jews, as the Jews insist, but is a father of all who have been credited with righteousness through faith. So look at what he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul takes these promises that were given to Abraham to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and to be a blessing to all the nations and finds their fulfillment in those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles alike, making Abraham as promised the father of many nations. Paul doesn't want his audience to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss how these promises made to Abraham so long ago were pointing forward to a time in which they would find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ through the inclusion of Gentiles into the covenant. By the way, this is good news for us. We are the Gentiles. We are those nations who would be blessed through Abraham. And as Paul has already established that Abraham was not credited with righteousness because of works or through circumcision, and by now, and now, by extension, he points out that Abraham's righteousness hasn't come by way of the law either. Paul's comment about the law here seems to me to be accomplishing a couple things simultaneously. He is both dismissing the idea that those who have received the law are the only legitimate heirs of these promises made to Abraham. And that righteousness can come through the observance of the law. He dismisses both of these. Look at what Paul says here in verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So what is Paul talking about here? It's very simple. He's stating that if the observance of the law is decisive in determining a right standing before God, then faith and the promise play no role. Again, Paul is unequivocal in stating that there is an antithesis between believing and doing. Righteousness by faith and righteousness by the law cannot coexist. As biblical scholar John Stott puts it, law and promise, and I like this, he says, they belong to different categories of thought which are incompatible. Law language, you shall. What does it demand? Our obedience. Promise language, I will. What does it demand? Our faith, our trust. What God has given to Abraham was a promise to be believed entrusted, not a law to be obeyed. And Paul wants to be very clear here though, so he takes it a step further because not only can observance of the law not bring about righteousness and God's blessing, it actually does the exact opposite. Look what he says here in verse 15. For the law brings what? Wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now Paul isn't saying here that there is no sin without the law or that those who do not have knowledge of the law are not guilty of sin and will not be subject to God's wrath. Paul will show in chapter 5 that sin existed before the error of the law and he's already stated in chapter 2 that God's wrath is also inflicted on those who do not have a written law. Rather, the word he uses here in verse 15 for transgression is a technical word which describes the violation of commandments that are specified and written. In other words, if I have been told that it is a violation of the law to lie, and then I lie, what am I doing? I am knowingly and deliberately trespassing against the law. This is not only a sin, it is a what? Transgression. Transgression. And because it is conscious and involves active rebellion against a known standard, the responsibility is much greater. Thus, the incurring of wrath. Again, the law cannot be kept. So those who have it will inevitably, knowingly violate it, leading to God's judgment. That's Paul's point here. So notice here that the words law, transgression, wrath. As Stott was saying, this is all one category of thought and language. But then look at verse 16. Paul's going to move on from that, and he's going to use words like grace and promise, which are a completely different category. Paul wants his audience to see and understand that there is no assurance in trying to obtain the promise through devotion to the law. Devotion to the law will always be frustrated by our fallen state. Only those who rely on the graciousness of God will be comforted. Paul wants his audience to grasp that our role is to humbly receive the grace of God through faith. This is faith's exclusive function, to receive what grace offers. Now, this is very important for us, so stay with me here. If we are following Paul's argument that righteousness comes by faith alone, then we should be asking ourselves, what exactly is the nature of this faith through which righteousness is credited? What's the content of this faith? What form does this faith take? Paul wants his audience to understand that faith is not some vague abstraction. It isn't simply an intellectual assent to a doctrine. No. As one commentator so aptly describes it, it is an adherence to God's promise despite the whirlwind of external circumstances that imperil it. It is an adherence to God's promise, despite the whirlwind of external circumstances that imperil it. So look at verse 16 with me. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares The faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, the promise could not be obtained by the law since people fail to obey it. Rather, the promise is received through faith alone, which ensures that it is in accordance with God's grace alone, rather than human ability. This promise that has been given to Abraham and all of his offspring, meaning all those who possess the faith of Abraham, both to those who have been recipients of the law, the Jewish Christians, and to those who have become Abraham's offspring by way of faith in Jesus Christ, the Gentile Christians. So, what is the content of Abraham's faith? Verses 17 and 18. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham and Sarah were past the point of their human ability to fulfill God's promise to them by their own ability. Abraham was 99 years old when God made the covenant with him in Genesis 15. Sarah was in her 90s. Paul calls Abraham in verse 19. Look at what he says here. That Abraham is as good as dead. Which doesn't seem like a very kind assessment of Father Abraham. But not only were their bodies past the point of the ability to bear children, Sarah has been barren all of her 90 plus years. Which Paul also mentions in verse 19. Abraham wasn't in denial about this reality. Paul tells us in verse 19 that Abraham considered his physical state that he and Sarah were in. However, Abraham believed at least two things about God. And here is the content of Abraham's faith. First, he believed that God would fulfill the promise God had made to him, which included the promise to grant Abraham descendants despite his and Sarah's old age and Sarah's barren womb. And secondly, he believed that God would fulfill this promise because he believed that God had the power to do the impossible which was to bring forth life where there was none, by his resurrecting power. He believed that God could effectively call these promised descendants into existence, even though they did not yet exist. In hope, he believed against hope. Abraham believed, despite what any human being could expect to happen, despite their lack of human potential to help bring this promise to reality, despite the bodies of Abraham and Sarah being dead in terms of childbearing, and despite Sarah's womb also having been dead for all of those years, Abraham still believed. Paul doesn't stop there, though. Paul wants us to see also the form that this content takes, how Abraham's faith continues through to the realization of this promise. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So first, even as Abraham's body weakened, Paul tells us his faith did not. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to leave the rest of his family and go to the land that God would show him. It was then that God gave him the initial promise that he would make Abraham a great nation. It took almost 25 years for this promise to become a formal covenant and then for Sarah to bear him a son. Yet Abraham's faith that God would fulfill his promise remained and only grew stronger since at the ripe old age of 99, his human potential had lessened considerably. Paul wants us to see here that true faith will not falter when there are circumstances that threaten the realization of what has been pledged. The second aspect of the form of Abraham's faith is found in the first part of verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, Abraham's faith did not waver because of unbelief. Now, some of you who are familiar with the narrative might be thinking, how exactly can Paul say this, given this narrative found in Genesis? And there are certain places in this narrative where Abraham seems to regress in his faith. However, what Paul is pointing to is the basic pattern and direction of Abraham's life, which was ultimately typified by trust in God, not doubt. Paul wants us to see that this is also true of all those who share the faith of Abraham. It isn't that all of us won't have doubts at times, but it is that those who have true faith will live lives that will demonstrate a perseverance and persistence in faith. Finally, the third aspect of the form of Abraham's faith is found in the latter half of verse 20 and on into Verse 21. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I really appreciate what biblical scholar Thomas Schreiner says on these verses. He says this The secret of Abraham's faith is that he acknowledged God's glory by acknowledging his ability to carry out his promises as a resurrecting and sovereign God. We have to see, we have seen that. The fundamental sin of human beings is the failure to give glory to God. We see that in the first chapter of Romans. Then worship of the creature rather than the creator. By contrast, faith glorifies God because it acknowledges that life must be lived in complete dependence on him. The supreme way to worship God is not to work for him, but to trust that he will fulfill his promises. And that's what Abraham did. He trusted in God's promises. He considered his own abilities. He acknowledged that only by the sovereign power of God would these promises come to fruition. Only God had the power to accomplish what he had promised. And Abraham rested his assurance in God, not in himself. Therefore, therefore Paul repeats what has been told to us about Abraham in Genesis 15. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And now Paul is going to put all the pieces together for us. Verses 23, 24, and 25. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I don't think any of us is surprised that Paul now explicitly states here what has been underneath all along. All of these promises that have been made to Abraham are fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham and we in him. And the Christian from Jewish or Gentile background who places his faith in the promises of God fulfilled in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ exercise the same dynamic faith as Abraham. It was God's purpose for Abraham to function as the father of many peoples, and to become the exemplar for his children, who would obtain righteousness in the same way as he had so many years before. And now do you see the continuity between Abraham's faith in these promises and God and our own? Do you see it? Abraham believed in a God who could bring forth life from death the death of Abraham and Sarah's ability to bear children, the death of Sarah's womb, were resurrected. They were brought to life despite what anyone could have reasonably expected to happen. So too was Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses. From death, God brought about the newness of life. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, but on the third day, he was raised from the dead, and we with him. We who were enemies of God, who were dead in our sins with no reasonable expectation to be reconciled to God while we were in active rebellion to Him. With no reasonable expectation to be brought back to life, Jesus was raised for our justification. We had been crucified with Christ and we were raised up with Him in the newness of life. God called into existence the descendants of Abraham to fulfill his promises to him once you were not a people. But now, by the grace of God, you are God's people. Dearly beloved, we hope against all hope when we place faith in Jesus Christ. But I implore you to place your full trust in the promises of God in and through Jesus. When your bodies grow old and weary and death comes knocking at your door, trust in God's promises in Jesus Christ that death is but an entrance into eternal life and that you will receive a resurrection body that is not subject to illness and death and decay. When your sin becomes too heavy to bear, Trust in God's promises that we have one who has bore our sins in his body on the tree and made atonement for them. When trials and tribulations come and threaten to undo us, grow strong in faith by the grace of God and give him glory. He who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Hope against all hope. Knowing that God's promises never fail. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our forefathers in the faith. We thank you for Abraham, who is an exemplar of the faith, who, despite the physical realities, trusted in your promise. Lord, help us to rest in your promises made to us in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that in Jesus Christ we have been adopted as your children and made the offspring of Abraham. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.